that's exactly where the change is. It's in that liminal space. It's not in the direct parts. It's in the relationship between them. Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we share a conversation with someone who is making sense of our increasingly connected world. In the second episode, I'm really pleased to welcome Nora Bateson, whom I spoke with recently from her new home in Sweden, in the company of a rather cheerful bird who sang away throughout the duration of our conversation, as you'll hear. Nora is a filmmaker, lecturer, writer, and self-professed interloper. She made an award-winning film called An Ecology of Mind about her father, Gregory Bateson, the groundbreaking anthropologist, philosopher, and cyberneticist. She's also written a great book called Small Arcs of Larger Circles, which I can thoroughly recommend. And she now runs what she calls Warm Data Labs all around the world, which she mentions in this episode. Her work draws upon her own rich personal history, including as far back as her grandfather, William Bateson, who was a professor of biology at Cambridge University, who first proposed the term genetics back in 1906. I started out our conversation by asking her what the impact was of unexpectedly losing a year's worth of work due to a broken laptop, which had happened just a few months ago. Enjoy. Well, it's interesting because it's, first of all, it's just a reminder of how tightly coupled we are at this point into this technological world and a reminder of what the, some of the risks are of that. And it's easy to sort of think that things that are in the cloud or things that are on a disk or that somehow this is a a more ecological approach or I guess one of the things that has come out of losing that material was really the reminder of the sort of the vast disconnect that happens when the the thing is unplugged and it's gone. It's just gone. There is no piece of paper to find. There is no copy somewhere. I continue to find things that are reminders of things that are gone, you know, little shadows, little imprints, like, oh no, that article or, oh, that photograph or that video I shot or that, that if I was living 30 years ago, they would be in my studio somewhere. On the other hand, what's gone is gone is gone. And I remember once when I was a kid, I wrote this poem and I showed it to my dad and he just, he loved it. And I, it was on a piece of paper and I took it to school and I lost it somewhere between the bus and the play yard and the classroom and the bus again. And I don't know. I mean, I must've been 11. I was, and I went home and I said, Oh, you know, I lost that poem. And he said, Oh, too bad. Such a shame, but you may have lost the egg, but you've still got the goose that laid it. So (laughs) I like that. There was this, you, you know, sort of reminder of, well, it's actually on board and probably the next time you generate it, it'll be better. 
No, well, that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful anecdote from your father. I like that. Thank you for sharing. So just it's kind of zooming out to the really kind of big picture stuff, you know, lots of people, yourself included, sort of talk about the kind of period of immense disruption and change and transition that we're on as a kind of as a world, really. But I was just curious, because you've obviously, with your work, taken quite a, a long term perspective, also looking at your father and your grandfather's work. I'm just kind of curious whether, to some extent, every generation feels they're going through immense disruption and change and transition. So just curious how you think, you know, now is different to to those periods of transition that have gone before us in the last hundred years or more? Well, of course, you know, there's been radical change, especially William, you know, who was around for the turn of the century and World War One and World War Two and all the big breakthroughs in science and so on in that time period and the explosion of industrial capitalism. I guess the thing is that I do see it as being profoundly different now. And the profound difference, I think, has to do with, you know, where the cracks are, where the layers are, and where they've been identified. I sort of have this sense that it's important at this point to recognize that looking backward in history isn't maybe going to give us the clues we need to the unprecedented levels of change that we're going into. So I'm a little bit concerned about that. Finding that I, I, I recognize in a lot of the conversations as well-meaning and as supercharged as they are with urgency for transformation and change, that for the most part, what is being discussed is really still floating at the top of the pool. The metaphor I've used is that it's sort of like watching the swirls of sunscreen on the top of the swimming pool, that we're not really going down into the depths because the depths of what has to shift now is really at the level of identity and at the level not just of policies or laws, but of a recognition collectively of what kind of world we live in and what it means to live in it together, not only with each other, but with all the other living organisms. And the sort of the circle around belonging has been drawable around whatever, around culture, around religion, around language, around profession, around geography, around race, around belief systems of one sort or another. And now that circle has to be extended into a notion of belonging inside the living world. And uh, that that's a really big cognitive shift. And and I'm I'm even sort of cautious now of using the word disruption because all this vocabulary that has become um, kind of metabolized into the existing system that has to do with changing the existing system. Um, And I'm worried about that, frankly. When we start having movements that are part of our existing system that are premised on transformation, we have to be really careful about what happens there. Are we talking about transformation or are we talking from within transformation? And if we're talking about it, how does that aboutness make sense 
at the level of the world we're in now. Issue, you know, one of the things that I find working with um, psychologists frequently is there's kind of um, a challenge that has to do with uh, how somebody might shift their way of making sense. And the challenge looks like this. What is being suggested or invited or offered has to be unfamiliar enough that it's possible to learn from it, but familiar enough that it's possible to have entry into it. In other words, if the change that's being suggested is so changed that it's on another frequency, it's like a dog whistle, it can't even be read. And therefore, there's no possible um, entry point. But if the change that's being offered is too familiar and too translated, too, too much like the existing system, then there's no reason to change. And that's what we've been doing for the last 50 years is this um, gentle notion of incremental change from within the system. And we're going to change capitalism by making it green. And we're going to, you know, change the gender relationship by having equal opportunity. And we're going to do this incrementally. So I, I'm interested in that. So I totally get the uh, incremental change is not enough to deal with the challenges that we face. Disruption as a word and as a concept puts a lot of people off and doesn't take people along on, on the journey that we need to go to. So just curious what language or what methods that you use to sort of convince people or organizations that you're, you're talking to and working with of that paradigm shift some people might refer to it as. Yeah, I'm just curious what language you think resonates with people or, or resonates with you. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, I think for me, what I'm working with is actually using lots of different textures of language and images and inviting this much more as a sort of a portrait of what change and transformation might be rather than a direct definition. Because in portraiture or in that notion of a combined sense-making, it's less tempting to, to do this thing that our culture wants to do, which is to grab hold of some identifiable part and to linearize it into a strategy. And this, this, of course, is the problem. So to produce a whole language of change-making that feeds and is recognizable and respondable from within that same linearity and direct correctiveness is in itself a reproduction of the problem. So it's that thing of, can we produce a notion of this conditions and the boundaries and the, the textures, the alchemies of shifting that we're going into that is not direct so that what it gives us is possibility to move out of the kind of mechanistic thinking that looks for direct correctives. On the other hand, that's exactly where the change is. It's in that liminal space. It's not in the direct parts. It's in the relationship between them. Part of me feels just listening to you speak that, and I wonder if you agree with the statement that there's a degree to which we're, we're having to go full circle, right, right back to our kind of earliest place in, in the world where human beings weren't, were just another species of animal part of you know the natural kingdom but then as we have evolved to use your grandfather's term 
we've separated ourselves from mother nature and and that is leading to the destruction of the planet ultimately and so we're having to be a lot more humble about our place in the world and somehow is there a degree to which we're we're going full circle would you say yeah maybe it's more than circular maybe it's a big messy tangle of swishy swirly and maybe it's not back maybe it's just in i guess let me give you an example of what i'm talking about okay when you go to the doctor now there's a an existing and beautiful and important set of knowledge that medicine holds but because medicine as a profession has been developed in a culture that is premised upon making separations and decontextualizing a lot of the medicine that we have is not able to respond at systemic levels to something we might begin in the future to think of as health so what where is health what is health is health something that exists in your body is it in your family is it in the biosphere is it in the community where is your health and if you go to the doctor and you show symptoms of a particular rash or you're carrying a particular bacteria what the existing knowledge is about what knowledge is and i'm not trying to be tricky but very seriously the limitations of what we know is what we're talking about to be able to identify that bacteria is of course wonderful and incredible and to be able to have developed an antibiotic or something to treat that bacteria is of course incredible but what has been missing is the larger conversation that that bacteria your body your family your relationship to the ecology and the the bio bioregional processes around you your stress your emotions your sadness your trauma your family you know all of that is actually inside that conversation and yet where we are right now is a, a very limited circle of knowledge my mom turned 90 this year and she told me about when her doctor used to come to the house right she grew up in another world i love when she tells me about that world you know when she was a kid her phone number was 9 in <laughs> 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 that fabulous so um but when the doctor came to the house the doctor came to the house and the doctor treated the children and the parents the doctor treated the next door neighbors the doctor treated the aunts and uncles the doctor treated the grandparents so when the doctor entered the house the doctor may have been there to look at the rash or to treat the bacteria but the doctor without registering it in their clipboard the doctor was also taking in a lot of what i would call warm data a lot of information that has to do with are they happy is there trauma is there dirt in the carpet is there alcohol is there poverty what is going on in this household and the ability to look at lots of different households and sense different ways of being in their in their health and in their harmony or their disharmonies and be able to to at some level sense make within that to how they talk how they interact how they touch how they look how they are so there's all this other information that exists 
that right now has no place to be that we badly need to be taking into account. And we actually do it without knowing we're doing it. We do it. We're looking at relational information, but we don't really register that we're doing it. Why is Prada or Gucci a thing? Why? Well, those are relationships. We're looking at those relationships and establishing some kind of notion of value premised upon those relationships. So it's not that we can't see relationships. It's that the ones we do are in another set of relational possibilities. I guess they say kids these days, they can recognize hundreds of logos, but only a few botanical species. I read a great book many years ago. I don't know if you're familiar with it, called The Geography of Thought by Richard Somebody. I've forgotten her surname. But uh, one of the things that stuck with me in that book was the fact that in the English language or in kind of Western cultures, uh, we have far more nouns than than verbs or the ratio of nouns to verbs is a lot higher than in uh, Chinese or Japanese and Asian cultures and Asian languages. So I'm just curious to what extent what you've just been describing, this awareness of brands and objectification is somehow codified in our in our language, in our culture, and in particular Western language and Western culture, and whether there's a difference in other parts of the world because of their history and because of their language. And yeah, well, I well. think there is a difference, and there's a difference in, in various families even. So it's, it's really difficult to say where those differences are, except that they're everywhere and nowhere, because I think everyone recognizes the McDonald's arches, and at the same time, what are those relational processes that that those arches get recognized into? So you asked me when I'm talking about what kind of transformation we're going into, what does it look like? How am I communicating that? One of the ways that I am doing that is I have this one slide and it's about perception in context. And I think this ties into what you were just saying, but There are several photographs in the slide, and one of them is of a a white fox in a white tundra. And one of them is of a stick bug in a tree. And one of them is of a leaf gecko surrounded by the leaves that it is mimicking. And uh, a tree, a leaf tree frog that, that matches the leaves that it's in. And one of the things about all of these organisms is that to you and I, we can identify that they have developed things that we have labels for, camouflaging, biomimicry, however you want to discuss that. But at another level, we should begin to ask ourselves, where is the edge of the fox? Where's the edge of the gecko? Because when you see that stick bug or that tree frog or that fox in their context, clearly the edge of the fox is not the edge of the actual canine-ish creature. Clearly Mm -hmm. the edge of the fox extends into the biological context, the cultural, the the, the contextual processes that that fox lives within are manifested in its physiology. So what are the contexts when we ask ourselves, where is the edge of Roland? Where's the edge of Nora? And the temptation is to say that it's my skin or it's my family. 
But when I look at that, those other images, where's the edge of the stick bug? And if we're talking about systems change, if you're trying to think about systems change in terms of a stick bug, what are we changing? Who is the stick bug if the tree is gone? Who is the snow fox if the tundra is gone? Who is the gecko that is that matching of these particular leaves if those leaves change? So where's the change? And this is what I mean by I feel like we've been floating like sunscreen at the top of the pool. The depth that we're actually talking about shifting our sense of belonging and contextual integration with each other and the natural world, the depth of what we're talking about is actually profound and important. And it has nothing to do with whether you buy organic milk or inorganic milk or recycle or don't recycle. You know, this is all just shades of integration with an existing system. And the existing system itself if you're a stick bug in a tree and you're, the tree itself is somehow needing to change, so who are you in a different system? That's the question. We keep looking outward thinking we're going to change the outward system, but our entire sense of, of what a day is, what time is, what love is, what intergenerational relationships are, what language is, what food is, everything is built in to our existing system. So when we're talking about systems change, we're talking about a kind of curiosity and exploration and disorganization, but really a, a, a level of confusion uh, is difficult to embrace because there's so much uncertainty in it the only thing that's worse than that uncertainty is the certainty of knowing what happens if we don't. I'd really like to talk to you about what, how we design for systems change or, or just how do we do anything with, with all that uncertainty floating around us and, and we can never be sure that what we're doing is necessarily the right thing or the wrong thing maybe that's too simplistic a way of putting it but given all, all this designing for systems change or this kind of systemic stuff that you're so eloquent in talking about and working working around i'm kind of curious how you kind of combine the the macro and the micro at the same time, so to use a fairly sort of terrible example, but you know something like Uber has a brilliant kind of user experience for the individual that works very well for the individual, but it has a sort of terrible kind of impact at a kind of citywide level in terms of congestion and the impact on people's working conditions and everything else that goes with it. So you could say that it's brilliantly designed at kind of at one, with one lens, but it's kind of terribly designed with another so how do you design at you know at multiple scales so that you're you're having the the impact that you want or you need at, at all levels not not just at you know the kind of individual level which is where we tend to kind of focus i mean i think we have to be really careful though because the the temptation is so strong to create systems that allow us to live tomorrow like today uber's just another version of that so one of the things that is happening is that there's this itch to uh, use systems thinking 
to design economies and societal patterns that are going to create systems change, right? At the heart of what is being asked for in that systems change is actually not changing the system. So okay. can we please have change with no change? <laughs> I can want there to be a world in which I can still have my cappuccino in the morning and I can get to work in a nice automobile and I can do what I need to do and I can make a profit and I can have a luxurious living room. But I want all of that to somehow be non-exploitative and extractive and to be a good person while I do it. And there are some serious flaws in that thinking. I just think we have to be ready for a much more radical movement of our own experience of what a day is than has been imagined so far. So one of the drawbacks is, is that the way that systemics are being used right now is very mechanistic. My beautiful, wonderful colleagues in the systems world are using maps of systems, listing stakeholders, and trying to get a broader sense of intersector um, workability by doing this. And the problem with maps of systems is that they really only appeal to one aspect of sense making, and that's largely visual. But the other, I mean, that is not our only way of sense making. And so the deeper sensibilities, the deeper possibilities for understanding a system have to do with our other senses and they're, they're not in the map and so they're they're super sterile and that sterility of course produces a lack of response to all that other information and then what do you have you have vast areas of systemic experience that are untended and therefore come out uh, exploited extracted and back where you started yeah so where would you start is it with the emotional connection? Well, it's, it's actually, it has to do with, and this is the whole point of the warm data lab process and the warm data work. It has to do with recognizing that whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's health or uh, transportation or education or economy or whatever it is, that what we're talking about is taking place across and through and within many contexts, not just one, but many. And so there needs to be some possibility of sense-making in conditions that allow that sense-making across the many senses of the many contexts. I'm working with a group in Finland on uh, education. And they're working on reorganizing the education system. So where's the education system? Is it in the education system? No. The education system is in the culture. It's in the economic system. It's in the political system. It's in the relationship between parents and their children and grandparents and their grandchildren. The education system is about what kind of employment exists. It's about what sort of... What, what do we consider knowledge to be that the next generations will need? The education system is not something that you change by going into the schools and implementing new curricula 
or giving them iPads or something. The education system is something that if you want to allow for there to be significant transformation, you change the conditions in which the education system exists. Hmm. A different order of change. It's that thing of when I was saying direct correctives. Well, direct correctives are great when you're fixing a pickup truck, but they're not so great in a culture or in a living system. So one of the things that you say on your website, which I like, and I'm just curious to hear you say a little bit more about them in turn, perhaps, is three things. Invite chaos, mm. trust complexity, and fund systems change. Can you just <laughs> say a bit more about those three and why you think they're important and perhaps necessary? Well, a lot of people have said invite something along those lines. Invite chaos. I, I think if there's a seeking for systems change that's in any way underpinned by the seduction of wanting to manage complexity or control the change or direct the transformation or envision the transformation and strategize toward it, watch out. Because of course, I mean, how many times in your own life have you thought you knew what you wanted for your future? And then some disaster has taken place and you realized that what you actually, if you had gotten what you wanted, it would have been horrible. You know, that, that one person you wished you could have a romance with or that one job you wish you could be the, you know, the, the leader in or that, that, that thing that you dreamt of and then you suddenly wake up and you think, oh, that, has, that, would have dis that would have been so destructive to so much of my possibilities. Invite chaos. I guess that's sort of that, that thing of, well, it's coming anyway. So you, if you resist it, that's going to be one relationship. <laughs> if you're passive to it, that's another relationship. And if you're ready to just roll up your sleeves and pay attention and dance with it, and be in the nuance and the subtlety and the broad strokes and the zoom in and the zoom out, that's another possibility of being in it. What does that feel like? What is that? How is that a different way of, you know, sort of in martial arts terms, thinking about a stance rather than a plan? You know, what if you are ready to respond and reflect and, and receive and participate, that's another way of being than you know laying it all out on the whiteboard and expecting that to unfold in its linearity that's not what's going to happen so trust uh, complexity that that's another one that i'm just i'd love to hear your your thoughts on that i find complexity alluring and frustrating in equal measure and so yeah what do you mean to trust complexity well i guess there's a lot of discourse right now around trust. And I'm a little bit suspicious of it because my own experiences that whenever you're in some sort of situation and you start talking about trust, it's because you don't have it. I hardly ever talk about how I trust my feet to carry me across the floor. You know why? Because I trust them. So uh, it's a tricky thing when you start talking about trust because really that means that there's another conversation that probably needs to happen. So hmm. that 
notion of trusting complexity is is kind of cheeky, really, because the romance with the idea of emergence, for example, is is kind of funny because, of course, an emergency is also happening in emergence. So, like you said, complexity is not necessarily something pleasant or beautiful, but what it is is that it is. So the complexity is happening, whether you're paying attention to it or not. The complexity you are within is withinning, whether you are drawing it out as a linear process or a circular process or a portraiture of chaos. It's still continuing from your microbiome to your weird interactions on the internet between whatever, 4chan communities and new materialism like the the complexity is on so where are you <laughs> in it hmm. yeah i'm re- i'm reminded of something someone once said to me about technology namely that it's inherently imperfect if it worked perfectly it wouldn't be called technology it would just be stuff and just like you don't trust your feet to what take you across the ground you know it's just there's something perhaps inherently flawed i'm not sure that's the right word in complexity that it just forces us to remember that it's there and engage with it and not not bury it deep um because we can't do anything with it when it's down there yeah so much of that has to do with i think the way that we've been taught to think about complexity i mean for anybody who's had that opportunity in life to have been exposed to systems theory complexity theory systems thinking you know all of that work one of the the real limitations in that is that it's about systems it's about complexity and this is where what i'm doing with warm data i'm so excited about because in my own lifetime just to bring it back i grew up in a household where i wasn't learning about systems or about complexity i was learning about life from within a set of assumptions in which those notions were already on board, much like probably, although very different, some of the indigenous people that you were talking about earlier, where it's sort of confusing, like, why is this not a thing? How is it that we have to talk about this when what we need to be talking about is at another level because we are within this? That's a, that's a big shift, right? And again, that takes us to the stick bug recognizing we are within these transformations. So when we try to talk about them, we're liable to make really big mistakes. Yeah, it takes us out of the experience. It takes us out of the moment, doesn't it, by yeah. some, somehow abstracting ourselves from it. And that abstraction is in itself what's causing us to abstract. So it's, 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 we live in a, a context that doesn't like context. It's that second order, that doubling up of the issue that has got us all Mm. screwed up. Somebody once said to me, fire can't burn itself and water can't wet itself and the mind can't understand itself. There's something about that. You can't use the same system that you're coming from to understand it or something. I've spent the last six months, well, the last many years, but in particular in the last six months, talking to hundreds of people who are all in their own way, going through their own changes and transitions in their life or their work. What would you what would you say to them in terms of how to navigate their way through that and, and what they can do to, to affect some of the changes that you've been talking about in this conversation? I guess that ultimately what we're talking about 
is a kind of integrity and generosity that comes with paying attention to the many very delicate interdependencies that we live within. And unfortunately, we're blind to most of those interdependencies. You can't see your microbiome. You can't see the bacteria in the soil. You maybe don't understand the complexity of even your best friend's responses to things. We are existing within an incredible swirl of interdependent processes and relationships and things that we do not have the perception of yet. But if we break them, if we harm them, if we exploit or extract or presume to own or control them, the pain of that destruction will ripple out not only into our lives, but into the lives of other people, other organisms, other biospheres. So for me, this is ultimately about a way of being in the world and the communication that is a kind of consequence of that. That consequence is, as far as I can figure out, something that is messy. You know, it's funny and it's sexy and it's rude and it's incapable of, of being tamed. So somewhere in us, like you said, do we have to go back? And I think we just have to go in. Somewhere in us, we are all still that doctor that visited my mom's house and without writing anything in his clipboard, took into consideration the many other forms of information that were there in the family to behold. Mm. And, and just finding some recognition of that. That's what's important. What kind of a stick bug are we in what kind of a tree? And if that tree is changing and we're changing as organisms, how can we hold that with the greatest amount of grace? And for me, that's the question. Well, that's a, a wonderful place to finish. Thank you, Nora, for sharing that. And I also want to thank the anonymous bird that's been cheeping away in the background. Because <laughs> that's been a beautiful counterpoint to your, your words. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Nora Bateson. There's something very deep and intriguing about Nora's words and her work, which I don't yet fully understand, but I find is rich with insight and meaning. And I hope you enjoyed listening to the second episode and it's helped you to consider the importance of the spaces and places in between people and things. Before we go, please can I ask that you like and subscribe to this podcast and perhaps share it with others that might like it as well. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and to find more interesting people to talk to and share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal a community and platform to help navigate the uncertainty and complexity of our connected world. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.